and she had the misfortune of coming across a 29-year-old uh, drug addict who was high. He attacked, uh, murdered, and raped her. I got on the police radar because some of the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police they might want to speak with And then he wired me up to the polygraph, and then he launched into his third-degree tactics. He raised his voice at me. He got in my personal space. Uh, he um, kept repeating the same questions over and over. And as each hour passed by, my fear increased in proportion to the time. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. And so towards the end, he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear. and You can go home afterwards that you're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my safety in, in the moment. Well, wait a second. This is starting to feel unfair. And I know specifically that I've been told over and over again that the U.S. justice system is extremely fair. They couldn't possibly have made a mistake. Hey, this is Matt Cox. I'm going to be doing an interview with Jeffrey Deskovich, and he is currently an attorney and was also wrongfully convicted and spent a significant time in prison. We're going to be going over his story. It's super interesting, so check out the interview. I was born in uh, actually a, a town that doesn't actually exist anymore, at least not by that name. Uh, I was um, born in uh, North Terrytown, which of course later became known as uh, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, I grew up in Peekskill, uh, New York, which is um, in Westchester County, New York. So it was a suburbs um, population of um, approximately 25,000 people. Uh, I would say in kind uh, of the double life, both in grade school and high school. I didn't I didn't quite think of it that way as a double life, but I realized now it kind of was. It was my life in school, my life outside of school. So uh, in school, I was... Um, kind of quiet, kind of to myself. I was kind of on the fringes of the of the society in the school, uh, whereas there's, there was my life after school. So I grew up in an apartment complex. There were a lot of kids that lived there and in the surrounding areas, and they used to come over to the complex where I, where I lived at. And I was one of the main two kids in the sense that what we suggested would generally be what we would do. We're going to go to the movies. We're going to play Monopoly, ride bikes, swimming, basketball, uh, stickball, kickball. I uh, even made up a few games. Um, yeah, so that's so that was my. I was kind of like an all-American kid after school, but in school I was, you know, had the quiet on the fringes of society. And I and I fucking thought about why that really is. Is I think firstly, I mean, the kids were a little bit older than than I was. Like I skipped a grade. I skipped first grade, and I think that that kind of caught up with me. But another thing also is that I was familiar with the kids in the neighborhood, and I was not really familiar with the kids that were in school. Okay. Did you ever get in, at like uh, in high school, did you ever get in trouble or anything or? No, not prior to what we're going to talk about. Uh, oh, unless okay. you're ready for me to start talking about it. Um, no, it's, it's fine. Um, okay. So just kind of a regular, I'm not, if there is a regular, you know, upbringing, everybody's, either on the fringes or maybe they're popular or maybe they're not popular or, you know, nobody really, I don't know that there's really a traditional, you know, growing up, everybody's got something going on. Um, 
so what so you were in high school so when when did this did you go to college you start college or no I, well I, no i was so i was in the year is 1989 i'm 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 a freshman in high school and one of my classmates uh, angela correa who had been um actually i'm a sophomore in high school so she was i was in uh, she was in two of my classes as a, as a freshman one as a sophomore uh i knew her name she knew my right that was really the extent of it. We weren't even really on a high buy basis. Um, she had been an immigrant in the country for about a year and a half from Colombia. Uh, led a sheltered life. Never really went anywhere unless she was accompanied by her older sister or um, or her parents. And so she she uh, she went missing. She had been in a, one of her classes was a photography class, and the professor had assigned the class to take pictures of foliage. And he had assigned a buddy system, uh, you know, whereby male students and female systems were, uh, students were uh, paired up. And so she went home with her older sister after school. Her sister went to the restroom, and when she came out, Angela was gone. She went off to the park to do the assignment connected to her photography class. The male student who had been assigned to her uh, played hooky, never showed up. And uh, so she, there was an area between uh, Hillcrest, New York, which are, there's condominiums, and then there's um, Hillcrest School. And there's like a really thick woods with like a macadam path there that links the two, which is kind of like a shortcut way of getting from one, from point A to point B rather than going in a big uh, circle on the street. And that woods area is um, pretty thick there. And she had the misfortune of coming across a 29-year-old uh drug addict who was high and um he he attacked uh murdered and raped her and so her body was missing for like three days okay so, so, i i i didn't realize this was in high that this this all took place in high school i i just kind of i don't know why i assumed it was college or something but okay so yeah uh, so i mean so she's missing for three days and you know, and there's an uh, announcement over the high school PA system and, and, and the local daily newspaper. And three days later, her body was found in the, in, was found in the park area, um, naked from the waist down. Uh, Big Skill was a, you know, again, it was a city population, about 25,000 people. Her murders were fairly rare. So when this murder happened, it created this atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. I mean, parents were bringing their kids to school, picking them up after school, bringing them straight home. There were, you know, town hall meetings held where safety tips and progress of investigation were were uh, were were given. Um, so I um, I got on the police radar because some of the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police they might want to speak with because uh, I didn't quite fit in. I guess their underlying thinking was people who are quiet to themselves commit heinous crimes. I guess that was their thought, rudimentary thought process. Um, but that, that answers the question of how I got on the police radar. Uh, but an additional factor after that is uh, I, I was an emotion. I was um, a sensitive teenager, and this was my first real brush with death, and so I had an emotional reaction. And um, so the police thought that my emotional reaction um, was some somehow some outward sign of my feeling guilty for what I did because they felt that that reaction was 
uh, disproportionate to what my actual relationship with the victim was, which is, you know, no relationship at all. I mean, I mentioned choosing a couple of classes and that was really it. We wasn't even really on a high buy basis. A reinforcing factor is that the police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to uh, have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching those characteristics. So the profile said that he was, you know, somebody who was likely a loner, probably somebody from, or probably um, somebody from high school, somebody that knew her. That really narrows it down quite quite a bit, right? Well, it also it also excludes her running across a random person. It's now now they're focusing on on a peer. Yeah, ex- 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 exactly. So, um, so, uh, my interaction with the police, uh, which went on for about six weeks, they played like a cat and mouse game in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me like my opinion was correct. They made me feel uh, important. I came from a single-parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique. Where one officer pretended to be a friend and the other and um, the other officer um, took on a more aggressive approach. And in time, I began to look at the officer pretending to be my friend as like a father figure. Um, also, prior to being a teenager, the career that I fantasized about having when I grew up was was to be a cop. So that's unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi-police work was how the police were able to pull the wool over my eyes, you know, that 16-year-old would be able to assist them in an active homicide investigation. So eventually they got me to really take a polygraph test. They said, we have some new information, which um, just came in the file. Uh, that'll allow you to be even more um, helpful to us. But fa- first, you're going to have to take and, po- uh, and pass a polygraph. So the next day, rather than report to the high school, I went to the police station for the test. But instead of giving me the test there, they drove me um, by car to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. So it was about 40 minutes away by car, which meant that I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. I was totally dependent upon the police. So there were three cops that came with me from Peekskill to Brewster. Um, um, but then there was also the polygraphist, who was a Putnam County Sheriff's and uh, Daniel Stevens was his name. And he was dressed like a civilian. And, um, you know, he never identified himself as law enforcement. He never read me my rights. Uh, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't, they didn't give me anything to eat. He gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but then uh, but but uh, I had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Right. Let's just uh, let's just get on with it. Uh, and from there, he put me in a, a small room and gave gave me countless cups of coffee, which got me nervous. And then he wired me up to the polygraph, and then he launched into his third degree tactics. He raised his voice at me. He got in my personal space. Uh, he. Um, kept repeating the same questions over and over. And as each hour passed by, my fear increased in proportion to the time. 
and he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, yes. Where was your Where was your mother? My mother and grandmother they were at home. They they because it was a school day. They had no idea that anything was wrong. So they didn't call around looking for me. Okay. And so towards the end, he said, "You know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it." And that really shot my fear through the roof. And then the officer had been pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm him, possibly going to harm me, that he had been holding them off, that he couldn't do so any longer. You have to help yourself here. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear, and you can go home afterwards, that you're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my safety in, in the moment. You know, so I, I made up a, a story based on the information they'd given me in the course of the interrogation room and in the six weeks run up to that. By the time everything was said and done, uh, I, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. Uh, the interrogation was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. Uh. What year was this? Yeah, this was uh, this was 1990. So she went missing in 89, and by the time they, they extracted this false confession out of me, it was ni- in 1990. So before I went to trial, the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which showed that seminal fluid found in and around the victim didn't match me. But instead of acknowledging they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute full speed ahead. In order to explain away the DNA, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud, to commit perjury. When there's an autopsy done, there's written in audio notes, which are taken as the findings are made when they're doing the autopsy. So it was only six months after doing that autopsy, only after the DNA didn't match me, that he suddenly claimed that, try to follow now, this is going to be tricky. He remembered that he forgot to document medical findings, which he claimed showed that the victim had been promiscuous, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that that was how the DNA didn't match me, and yet I was guilty, that she was sleeping around, that she must have slept with someone prior to my murdering and raping. Mm, I thought they were going to go with the old, that just means there were two perpetrators, you and someone else. Right. Yeah, they go with that sometimes, but not on this particular instance. Um, they I took it a step further, and they named another youth by name that they claimed that she had slept with. But they, they never set the proper evidentiary foundation for that. So they didn't try to get a DNA test, a DNA sample from him to run the test, for example. They didn't call him as a witness. They just made the unsupported argument to the jury. I just, they got away with that because of two factors. I mean, first of all, the victim's family was not coming to court, so they had no idea what was being said about her in the courtroom, that they were trashing her reputation in the furtherance of trying to convict me. And uh, secondly, my public, the public defender that I had uh, essentially didn't defend me. He never interviewed or called as a witness my alibi. I, I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. He rarely met with me. When I tried, when he did meet with me and I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the, in the interrogation room, he was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. 
Um, my lawyer never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to prove that that proved that the confession was coerced and false. He literally never cross-examined the medical examiner. And uh, my lawyer should never represent me in the first place because of the conflict of interest. So this other view that the prosecutor was falsely claiming had slept with the victim was represented by another attorney at the same public defender's office. And so that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explode the whole consensual sex sex theory. Uh, he wouldn't allow me to testify. I mean, I wanted to testify because when the because the interrogation had not been video audio tape, when the cops came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. And so I wanted to add those facts to to the record. But he wouldn't allow me to testify. He said that his one lost record was better when his clients did not testify compared to what they did. Well, probably his clients have had a pre-existing record and if they were they took the stand and they could be asked questions about that but that really didn't apply to me because i had never been convicted of anything uh then he said it wasn't up to him to prove that i was innocent it was up to the prosecutor to prove that i that i was guilty and you know that really is a legal principle that's very naive you have to really try to prove your client's innocent or they run a risk of possibly being wrongfully convicted uh, especially in a confession case, where you know you have to answer that confession, you have to explain the confession, you have to disprove the confession. You know, bringing it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. Sometimes he told the jury that the confession never happened. Sometimes he told the jury that it did happen, but it was coerced. And then other times he said that it was uh, false. So by taking this throw mud against the wall type of approach. He, he had to have been standing there with, you know, no credibility at all in front of the jury. Um, there were there were a few other irregularities. I mean, despite there being a general rule that polygraph test results are not admissible in, in, in court, the judge created a backdoor rule. He allowed the polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed. He, he said, well, the confession is alleged to have happened when uh, you were you were attached to well, during the polygraph, so he allowed the polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph while blocking my attorneys from asking any questions on the methods he used to arrive at his opinion. Uh, the victim's clothes, including the bra, had had been entered into evidence, and the jury asked to see the bra, which was important because that intersected with one of the statements in the false confession where, where I had said that I ripped her bra off. And it was at that moment that the judge said that the clothes had been left, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the, the, the janitors apparently thought it was garbage so it had been thrown out and so it wasn't available anymore. And lastly, the jury um, sent out a note on their third day of deliberation. They uh, asked the judge, well, if we, if we don't come up with an unanimous verdict, you know, if we don't come up with a verdict, are we going to be kept sequestered over the, over the Christmas holiday? And the judge told him yes. And I, I learned many years later that it was 11 to 1 for our conviction at that point. There was a holdout juror who thought I was innocent, but they were all pressuring him. And when the answer to that question came back, that ratcheted up the pressure. 
And that was why he uh, no one wanted to be there over the Christmas holiday. So that was why he switched to vote. And so ultimately I was uh, convicted uh, of, of a murder and rape, which I did not commit. And I was given a 15 to life sentence because um, I'd been charged as an adult and I was set to amend maximum security. Wow. You, you know, the, the interesting thing, I mean, other than just, you know, what an egregious act is that I'll bet you the prosecutor and those detectives just broke their arms, patting themselves on the back, telling themselves that they did the right thing, went home, slept like babies. Don't think, didn't think a thing about it. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so you, you, you get shipped off to prison, right? Right. You're processed. You get shipped off to prison. Right. You're how old again? I'm 17 by this point. 17. And they sent you to a maximum security prison. Yes. You had to have been put in like protective custody or something, right? I mean... No, they put me in general population. When I arrived in Elmira, um, they asked me, well, do you want to go to protective custody? And, you know, I'm very naive. I said, well, you know, what, what's that? And they said, well, I mean, we, we would, you know, if you told us that you felt that your life was in danger because of the charges, then, you know, we would, we would put you in a cell and you would be there for like 23 hours a day. You just come out for an hour, you come out by yourself and, watch the television or take a shower or use the phone and, um, you know, that would be it. And, you know, I mean, I really was kind of beside myself. I couldn't believe I had been, you know, found, been arrested and wrongfully convicted and, you know, given a 15 to life sentence and I'm in prison. And now you're, you know, uh, I couldn't believe all that had happened in the first place. And, you know, I really wasn't used to being in the cell at that point. Um, so, you know, I couldn't see myself, you know, agreeing to protective custody, which would, you know, make the situation worse, you know, so I may, I, I embarked on this line of reasoning. Now I'm already doing a life sentence, so I'm not going to agree to make this worse. I'm going to go to general population and take my chances. And if, and if somebody kills me, well, then I guess I don't need to worry about doing the rest of this life sentence. Could you imagine thinking that at that age? That's a horrible situation. Yeah, it was Elmira. There was um, three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was gang, other violence that didn't involve weapons. There was gang activity. Cumulatively, there was a general environment of violence and adrenaline that permeated the air. You know, the guards were, were uh, some were professional, did their job, but a lot were not. A lot of them were, were dangerous and, you know, some of them were lazy and they'd look the other way and walk in the opposite direction and violence was occurring so that they didn't have to break anything up physically or file any paperwork. Um, the, the food was sometimes burned, other times it, uh, it wasn't fully cooked. They um, had a system of maintaining order in the prison they, they called keep up, which, uh, you know, involved, if someone was found guilty of breaking a prison rule, they would be kept in the cell 23 hours a day out of the 24. They would send you less food. Sometimes it would be three or four days old. You could take two showers one week and three the next rather than daily as the rest of the population. Uh, you could not 
go to the commissary, which is a way of going to the store in the prison. So you couldn't purchase hygienic items or food items while you were on that status. It would give you one hour a day recreation in a, by yourself in a small caged area with maybe a pull-up bar on it if you were lucky. You, you could use the phone while you were on that status. So there were a bunch of times in the course of my incarceration where I was assaulted one time, in which I nearly lost my life. But beyond dealing with the physicality of that, I was subjected to those sections because in prison, if you, you're defending yourself, then that obviously meant that you were fighting. Right. Uh, I tried to minimize the loss I experienced while I was in prison. I got the GED. I got completed a bunch of vocational trades. I got an associate's degree. I completed a, another year towards the bachelor, but then the silver lining was taken from me. The college, the funding for college education for prisoners was removed. Um, then I just I then did more of the trades and I started reading nonfiction books. And of course, I was going to the law library to learn the law to try to proactively uh, work towards my exoneration because I didn't trust attorneys to defend me anymore on my. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Gee, I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, my, uh, mother used to, I had, my mother used to come see me, but, but not, not in the last five or last five, six years. She, she would come like once every six months. Uh, my mother passed away while I was in prison. I had several sets of aunts, uncles, uh, would come and then would disappear for three years. I'm a disappear. So in many respects, though, not literally, I mean, I, for most intents and purposes, I did the time by by, by myself. Is what it uh, what it amounted to. Um, towards the end of the sentence, in a moment, the correctional officials told me if I wanted to have any chance at all of making parole, I would have to take it past the sex offender training program. But the problem was that there was a guilt admission requirement tied to that. Everybody in the class would be expected admit guilt to the other prisoners in the class. The instructor simply saying that one was guilty was not enough. They wanted a complete blow-by-blow -blow account, and they, they wanted it all in, in writing and failure to complete any aspect of that would result in automatic removal from the program and being deemed to have refused to complete the program, kind of similar to like the AA type of philosophy. Right. You have a problem before you can make any actual progress on it. So in the end, I decided not to take the program. Did you want to ask something about that? Something I, I, well, what I wanted to ask is, you know, you're, you're going in as a rapist, murderer, essentially a, a sex offender, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Into a maximum security prison. Yeah. How, I mean, I, I understand you said you had, you know, there were several, uh, you know, there was, you know, altercations. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. how are the other inmates, are you being told like, hey, you can't, you can't watch TV, you can't do this, you can't walk on the rec yard, you can't, like, is that, you know, is that happening at that prison? Or are they saying, or are you saying, hey, I went to trial, I'm not guilty of this, and the other inmates were yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did say that to some people. I did say that to some people. I mean, I did get transferred. I didn't stay in Elmira the whole time. I did get transferred to other to other um, facilities. I would say I had more problems in the other facilities than, than in Elmira. But, you know, people, you know, um, sometimes people found out what I was incarcerated for and, you know, that motivated them to to attack me. I mean, I did have some conversations with 
people a couple of times and I, you know, showed them my um, paperwork where it shows that, you know, the DNA did it, did it match me. And, you know, that, that restrained a few people, you know, so it works sometimes, but not, not all, not all the time. No, well, inmates aren't known for, you know, well thought out uh, responses. So, right. I mean, I can see them, you know, they hear guilty and even though, you know, most of them want to say that, you know, they were, they were, um, bamboozled by the, uh, you know, by the, you know, by the, uh, the government, you know, whatever the U S attorney's office or the state attorney's office, you know, in their case, and they didn't deserve this much time and they didn't, they, but the moment they hear somebody has a charge of, Oh, he's a rapist they're all oh, that scumbag piece of garbage. What are you talking about, bro? Like you, you said you shouldn't even be here. He said he shouldn't be here. Like they're, they're always quick to jump on somebody, even though, yeah, I would really I was going to say, even though, you know, when you get up there for sentencing, the prosecutor makes you sound like the biggest piece of garbage and you already, you know, like, Hey, that's not true. That's an exaggeration. He's, you know, that, that's not, that never happened at all, you know, in your own case. So, but then guys jump on each other. You know, they're always, I don't know, whatever. People are assholes. No, so. I, I, I agree with you. When I went to the parole board, I knew they were in the habit of rubber stamps denying applications to anybody that had been found guilty of a violent crime. So I kept raising the issue of my innocence to try to protect myself when I referenced the DNA, but they didn't want to hear that. Uh, so, no. uh, so at the end, they asked me a question about uh, the Russian replacement training program. I gave them the answer. And that's when a different commissioner piped up and said, well, that's good, Mr. Deskovic, because you're going to need those skills once you return back to society. Good luck. And, you know, they don't give me the decision right there on the spot. It's mailed via institutional mail three days later. And I actually walked around the prison for the next three days thinking that I had somehow defied the odds and that I would be going home. And when I got the decision in the mail, it said I had a, uh, a good disciplinary record. I had an excellent educational record. Then I had some letters of support, including from a prison chaplain, but that nonetheless, I had been found guilty of a brutal, senseless crime, and, and therefore, they wrote to release me would be to lessen its seriousness, so they ordered me to appear in front of them uh, two years later. And it seemed kind of certain at that point I was going to die in, in prison on a wrongful conviction. You know, the other aspect of the incarceration I want to mention to you that it didn't recount, you know, is, you know, that I had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, suicidal ideation, you know, all, all those, all those things were, were thoughts that I had to, uh, that I had to deal with. So I'd like to change gears a little bit and share how I was, uh, exonerated and proven this. How, at, so, at what point, how long had you been locked up at this point? 16 years. 16 years. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it, while I was in prison, I was appealing my case. I when I went to the appellate division. My lawyer argued that my, you know, the manner in which I had been questioned, you know, violated my rights, that the evidence storming out, that blocking my lawyer from questioning, polygraph, uh, DNA was made use of you know, the legal, legal insufficiency and that they hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The verdict was against the weight of the evidence. A whole slew of issues, about 10 in all, had been argued. And I thought all the arguments were really super solid. And the court ruled that uh, I was not, a, that I was free to come and go. And so, you know, I, I uh, 
Am I, had my rights had not been violated by the manner in which I had been questioned. They wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, which kind of is a head-scratcher since the DNA didn't match me. Then they knocked out all the rest of my issues in one sentence. They wrote that they looked at my remaining contentions and found them either to be without merit or else not preserved for review. And they ruled against me 5 nothing, and it was all downhill from there. Mm. The re the argument, argument motion was denied in one word, denied. The New York Court of Appeals, New York State's highest court, is it's a two-step process. You have to get permission to appeal to them before they'll agree to hear, you actually hear your case, and they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Is that a certificate, of, certificate of eligibility or something? That's right. Certificate, close. Certificate of appealability, yeah. Oh. Did not, did not issue, was not issued. I uh, filed the habeas corpus petition, which is when a state prisoner is um, arguing that they're being held in violation of their constitutional rights. So uh, I lost the habeas petition because my lawyer was given the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure by the court clerk. So as a result of that misinformation, the petition arrived four days too late, which the court ruled at the urging of the then Westchester District Attorney Janine Pirro, her, her office urged the court to simply rule that I was late without getting to my issues. And so the court did that. And now I was time barred. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I can't, I can't win for losing. Okay. I can't, I can't win for losing. So I appealed that ruling to the federal court of appeals the two judges there were uh, Rosemary Pooler and, more importantly, future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and the, yeah, the so-called apathetic Latina. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my lawyer argued that, number one, this was not a delayed by me and my attorney, but by the misinformation by the court clerk, which I think is reasonable enough. Uh, she argued that upholding that ruling would cause a miscarriage of justice to continue, which kind of links back to the DNA and innocence, at least as a contextual matter. And lastly, that overturning the procedure ruling against me would open the door to more sophisticated DNA testing. So again, the district attorney opposed and and the, uh, the judges uh, ruled with the district attorney and they upheld that ruling. Then those same two judges um, Rejected my re-argument motion. I re we requested all the judges in the circuit to hear the court and make a collective decision. And then the U.S. Supreme Court declined to give me permission to appeal. And that marked the end of my appeal. So that's seven appeals lost. I've got 11 years in now. Well, wait a second. This is starting to feel unfair. And I know specifically that I've been told over and over again that the U.S. justice system is extremely fair. They couldn't possibly have made a mistake. I, I, I that, that is the thought that people think, but I don't. I don't think it's. I, I think I feel confident with the justice system. That hasn't been your experience. It hasn't has not been my experience, nor the experience of um, nor the experience of many other uh, many other people. So the only way back into court once your appeals are over is if you there's a retroactive ruling in the law, a new law has been passed, you know, or has been um uh but but made by the courts and then and then it's been, you know, retroactive. So it's either that or 
find some previously unknown evidence of innocence, which probably would have led to a different outcome. So because I didn't have any money to hire an attorney or investigator, I began this letter writing campaign for four years, writing anywhere, everywhere I could possibly think of that could, um, that could, uh, you know, that could help me. Uh, so, so that was really was my legal work for, for, um, for, for many years. And then, as I mentioned, I went to the parole board and I got the door slammed there as well. But ultimately, I was exonerated because one of those letters found its way to an investigator, Claudia Whitman. And she uh, wrote me and I showed her the DNA test results. I mailed a copy of that and she was convinced of my innocence at that point. And then she tried to get people to take my case. And one of her ideas was the, was the winning one. She suggested I write the Innocence Project again. I wrote them back in 99, part of the letter writing campaign back in 1993. But she said, look, the prior denial is irrelevant because the, the DNA data bank has been created. So I wrote them, I filled out their application, and then I forgot about it. I looked for other ways of getting representation, not, none of which uh, worked out. But I learned many years later during that six-month time period of waiting that one of the intake workers who was not an attorney with the Innocence Project attorneys didn't want to take the case. She re represented my case to them. And when they said no again, she represented it a third time. And this time she got it across using an idea that I had given her about the, the DNA data bank. So getting a representation was the first key. Uh, the second, uh, the second key was that Piero left office and her successor was not, didn't have her heel dug in. So she allowed me to get the testing. And the third thing is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the database. Uh, and so it matched him. So his DNA was only there because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim uh, three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. She was a school teacher at, and had uh, two children. Mm. So September 22nd, 2006, the conviction was overturned. I was released. I went back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges were dismissed against me on actual innocence grounds, and the actual perpetrator was subsequently arrested and uh, convicted and sentenced for the crime. What's going on, YouTube? RDAP Dan here, Federal Prison Time Consulting. Hope you guys are all having a great day. If you're seeing and hearing this right now, that means you're watching Matt Cox on Inside True Crime. At the end of Matt's video, there will be a link in the description where you can book a free consultation with yours truly, RDAP Dan, where we can discuss things that could potentially mitigate your circumstances to receive the best possible outcome at sentencing or even after you started your prison sentence. Prior to sentencing, we can focus on things like your personal narrative, your character reference letters, prepping you properly for the pre-sentence interview, which is going to determine a lot of what type of sentence you receive. If you've already been sentenced, we can also focus on the residential drug abuse program how you can knock off one year off of your sentence. Also, we have the First Step Act where you can earn FSA credits while serving your sentence. For every 30 days that you program through the FSA, you can actually knock an additional 15 days off per month. These are huge benefits, and the only way you're going to find out more is by clicking on the link, booking your free consultation today. All right, guys, see you soon at the end of the video. Peace. I'm out of here. Back to you, Matt. If that happened today, and they said, hey, they're semen, and they ran it against everyone would it stay in the system if it was uploaded yeah so they have what's called a keyboard search where they don't update they don't upload it. it goes up and it compares to everything and that's it 
right? So but they don't store it. Right. But then there's another thing when they do actually upload it, then it stays there and periodically another test is run and see it to see if it matches anybody, uh, anybody else. Okay. So the, so the innocence project had to get them, had to get the DNA, upload it, it matched. Yeah. Cause I, what I was, what I was wondering was, well, okay, well you're saying that he'd killed someone else and they, they retest his DNA. And I was thinking to myself, well, why wasn't it already in the system? But you, but you right, just well, need, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I just answered that. Okay. So my second question is when you got that, when you got that news, you were incarcerated did they, did the, did the lawyer come see you? Did they, did they just say, call the office? No, the lawyer, the lawyer came to see me and, uh, I, so I'll tell you the story. Okay. We're here for Right. So the prison guard opens my cell door, you know, when that happens, you're supposed to walk down and, you know, see why they open your door for, and, you know, and he told me I had a visit and I said, well, can you double check that? Because I'm really not expecting anybody. So they double checked it and, you know, sure enough, I had a visit. So I remember running back to my cell and I, you know, it was a kind of a tradition to keep like a visiting room shirt because this is the one opportunity you kind of, kind of sort of make a public appearance, you know, right. so you have like, your, your best shirt. So, um, so I'm hurrying up to the visiting room, I'm buttoning up this button down shirt and, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, thinking who, who the hell came to see me, right? So when I get in the visiting room, this woman is like waving at me like this and, and I wave back, but I'm thinking, well, maybe she's infusing me with someone else or maybe she knows me from a different facility. So I asked the guard, well, where's my visitor? And, and she told me, well, the lady right there, but wait, don't, don't you know who it is that came to see you? So not wanting the visit to be canceled, I just quickly lied to her and said, yeah, of course I do. And I walked over there. And she told me, you know, that she was, her name was Nita Morrow since she was my, you know, my, my attorney. And, uh, you know, by this point, having lost a lot of appeals, sometimes on technicalities, you know, like my antennas are up, I'm looking for anything out of the ordinary that, that might spell bad news. So she says, well, you know, the items have been tested. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? The items are not supposed to have been tested for another month. And she says, no, no, the, the, the items were, 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 were tested and, the results match the actual perpetrator. You're going home tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth like two more times. You know, and um, I remember just my head kind of spinning and all these thoughts running through my head one after the other, one thought having nothing to do with the other, and not, not, none of them having anything to do with you know what she was there to, to talk to me about. And she was sitting there. I had this like three-hour mental paralysis. She's holding my hand. And every now and then she cuts in and says, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? I'm like, no, hold up. Get, get, get that away from me. I'm not, not, not entertaining that. Don't play with me like that. I'm not going home. No. And what made it real at the end was that, what made it, what made it real was that she looked up at the clock and said, look, the visiting hours are almost over. There's a ton of work to do between now and then I got to get your, uh, suit size and, you know, and, you know, your clothing sizes and everything. And that made it real. And I felt better for five minutes. And then a different thought came in right head. And I thought, well, something's going to happen between today and tomorrow. 
they're going to change their mind and they're going to do what they always do, which is fight and win. Uh, so that was how I, that was how I got the news. What? So she, they, they, the next day they come, they pick you up, they drive you to court. Yeah. They, yeah. They're so, press there. Yeah. There was a ton of press. There was a ton of press in the courtroom and, and outside of the court. And, you know, they had my, uh, extended family my mother came and my extended family came and i remember when i when i went outside press conferences my turn to speak i remember saying uh is is this really happening you know because i thought i thought i finally did it i thought i finally managed to lose my mind and that that was wake up and you know still be in the prison cell and see the cell wall and cell bars and you know hear all the all the other cues and clues that remind you you're you're in prison yeah. Um, so I mean, I just yeah. What happened in the courtroom? What? Yeah. So I mean, when I, I uh, so when I came in the courtroom, I saw Barry Shack and my and my other lawyer at the Innocence Project, and he Shack leans over and says, "Well, I spoke to the judge and 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 the, and the chambers, and uh, you're you're definitely going home today." And then he said, "Do you, you want to say something to the judge?" And you know, but then the judge came and said, so the case is supposed to come back in front of the same judge that presided over the trial. He was still on the bench, but he, he, he ducked the assignment. He didn't want it. He didn't want to be a part of this. Yeah, exactly. So I had the impression from the rush in and the rush out that this judge got stopped doing this. You know, he really, that the ju- you know, that he really didn't want to have any part of it either, but he was just stuck. He was the low man on the, on, on the totem pole. Um, so by him running out, I didn't get the chance to say anything. You know, what about the U.S. prosecutor? Or, I'm sorry, the uh, state prosecutor. Yeah, so my, my lawyer mentioned, you know, the DNA never matched me, that it, that it, you know, then they went to the data bank and it matched the actual perpetrator and that person admitted they committed the crime. And then the state prosecutor, you know, said the same thing my lawyer did. And, you know, they both agreed in asking for the conviction to be overturned and me to, to be released. It was just the same U.S. prosecutor? No, no, no. Same state prosecutor? Oh, it was not. No, none of the people, none of the people were the original people that were involved in the case. So for the next, you know, I mean, it was very difficult transitioning back to, to society. I mean, Wait, one more question. Did, yeah, did the sure. state prosecutor give you a, you know, my bad or, you know, yeah, hey. Yeah, but, well, not there, but well, well, wait, yes. The short answer is yes. It's, it's, for me, it was a bifurcated process. So they overturned the conviction. And then we went back to court like six weeks later. Then the charges were dismissed. And that's when the prosecutor, um, you know, uh, gave me a symbolic apology. But she was not the prosecutor that was, right? Uh, you know, had prosecuted me, you know, said I got a symbolic apology from the district attorney, but she wasn't the DA at the time this happened. I got a symbolic apology from the judge, but that was not the one who presided over the trial. Right. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. You were right. saying. Yeah, I was just going to just discuss what it was like you know trying to put my life back together again you know i mean i used to go to a mental health professional at four times a week for like six years with dealing with the psychological after effects there was a stigma involved you know i was in prison for 16 years wrongfully yeah but i was still there for 16 years so you know how much of that rubbed off on you is it safe to be alone someplace with you so definitely that's been a challenge in terms of personal relationships um, it was awkward when I'd meet up with my extended family, 
because most of them had never come to see me and the few that did, it was few and far between. So they had in effect become strangers so I, I, who I knew was intellectually, but I, but I was a different person. So they, technology was different, cell phones, GPS, internet hadn't been created. Uh, culture was different, cities looked cities, uh, cities look, uh, different. I was released with nothing. Um, I was never. I was always passed over for gainful employment. I did get a job as a weekly columnist, uh, but they only wanted one article a week. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but in a really not uh, consistent form of income. So things were very difficult financially. I lacked stability at housing. I bounced around from place to place. At one point, I um, was a couple of weeks away from the homeless shelter. Uh, Mercy College, which gave me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree, they allowed me to stay um, on campus and gave me the meal plan. So that was how I avoided uh, avoided that. But I want to say that I had some particular challenges, though, just because my incarceration spanned from age 17 to 32. I mean, I had never before lived alone. I hadn't had a driver's license. I had never went shopping. I had never wrote, wrote, it, wrote, wrote a check or balanced the budget. So all those things were new and difficult uh difficult for me. I understand. Did you go through did you go through a period of time when you felt like like the doorbell would ring or you kept feeling like they were gonna come and say we made a mistake? Yeah. I I did I did have that feeling. And, and then I also, you know, had, had a feeling like, like for a while, it took me a while. Like I still felt like I was a prisoner that just somehow or another managed to somehow get loose or get free. Yeah. There definitely was that saying. And, you know, for a while I, 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 you know, I would like feel something in the back of my, my head. I mean, not, not literally, but almost like a metaphorical tapping on my shoulder and it will, well, what are you doing? Like everybody yeah. else belongs here, but you don't. But you realize that you, you you realize that you don't. But 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 nobody else does. You know what are you 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 know what are you doing out out here? That, and that, so in state in in the state prison system, do they do they have like a four o'clock count where you have to be standing up in your cell? Yeah, they do. Yeah, about four about four twenty. But yeah, they do. They do have. To, yeah. I was gonna say so around. 3.30, 3.45 for probably the first, I'm telling you, over a year, I would feel extremely anxious in my chest. Like this, I would get this anxiety, like I need to be somewhere. You know, and I knew, you know, I, I'm supposed to be standing up in my cell at four o'clock. They're going to come around and count. You have to stand there and you stand there and you be quiet in the whole, the only time the dorm or the unit was quiet. Because every time, you know, most people they think of prison they think oh you're isolated and it's quiet i prayed for isolation it was constant noise and banging and screaming and hollering but yeah there was the only time the unit was quiet and i you know just 10 15 minutes beforehand you always feel like you know okay we gotta hurry up i gotta hurry up i gotta get my cell i gotta get my cell you didn't want to be caught outside your cell now i was in the medium at one point they had a door so obviously you know there's lockdown but I was also in a open bay and you just basically just had to be in your cell. You just run there and you go there. But I felt like that for over a year. And I, I did, I kept thinking they're going to 
they're going to realize they made a mistake. <laughs> like they're going to come get me. Oh, I mean, a lot of the same things you're talking about, like even, you know, dating someone it's, yeah, they, they, they feel uncomfortable around you. They, they, it's a, it's a, it's an issue, you know? Sure. And then on my end of it, you know, um, really not knowing how to read body language or signs and, you know, sometimes being, being, being dense and then being concerned, well, I'm going to miss a sign and it's going to be a miscommunication. But then also thinking, like, I didn't have some fear, like I thought that somebody was going to say that, you know, I tried to rape them or something like that. It wasn't that. But I did have the fear, I did have the concern that somebody was going to say, well, he made, he made, he made me feel uncomfortable. So right. that, that, I, that, I, that I did have. And so, you know, there were many times where I kind of kicked myself in the pants. Well, you know, I was attracted to this person or that person, but I never said anything. And I never asked them, you know, I didn't ask them out. I didn't try to get a phone number and, you know, approach dynamics, you know, in, in different settings was all was all you know a challenge and you know it's really just like a short three questions right well what do you do and you know how, how'd you get into that and then the whole damn thing is out on the table but on the other hand a couple of times I did go the opposite route and you know I just didn't say anything but you know, I'm an, as, as we're going to unfold in the story I mean you know I, I, I was an advocate and you know ultimately I become an attorney and a civil rights advocate, you know, on behalf of the Waffle Convicted with a nonprofit. We're going to get into all that in, in a few. But for now, my point I want to make is when I did go the other route and I didn't say anything about anything, you know, I mean, I can't really talk about what I do because of those three questions. But then when I don't at all, nothing, it almost felt like I was living like a double life, though, because that was such, that's my advocacy work now is such an integral part of, of who I am and what my life is. So I experienced it that way. Yeah, no, I, 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 I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you wow. really, you really have to address it. You just have to address it pretty much right. up front, even though you're going to lose a few. Right. So, but I'm sorry. You, so, so now you, you were, you had said you had gotten a, um, a scholarship. Yeah, I got a scholarship from Mercy College, so that allowed me to finish the bachelor's degree. They allowed me to live on campus, so I avoided the homeless shelter that way. They gave me the meal plan, so so I could eat. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, you know, I um, so all those difficulties, but I'm on I'm on the campus. I'm I'm finishing the bachelor's degree. I began an advocacy career, uh, which had the elements of speaking. You know, up and down New York, across the country, I, I was making some money doing that. Uh, I was the weekly columnist, as I mentioned, so I'm writing. Uh, I figured out how to keep the media coverage going. As long as there's some new angle or something new, I can keep that going rather than the normal five minutes of fame that then disappears. You know, so I'm doing I'm doing regular television, radio, print media interviews, uh, ultimately new media when that becomes a thing. So I'm trading privacy for awareness. And uh, I got introduced to meeting with elected officials. So I'm regularly meeting with, with them, urging them to pass wrongful conviction prevention policy, uh, you know, it's new laws, basically. Right. So I did that for five years. Um, I didn't get into law school. And then uh, I decided to uh, get a master's degree. I thought having the additional 
credential would make me a more effective advocate. So I wound up getting a master's degree from the John Jay College Criminal Justice. My, my um, thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and reform. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and reform. I figured that the extra credential would make me a more effective advocate. And then I got some financial compensation. You know, um, New York State, you can get compensation from the state and then also file a federal civil rights lawsuit against the entities that were responsible. So I got financially compensated and I decided that I wanted to go to the next level. I wanted I want, I wanted to uh, continue the advocacy work I was doing as an individual, but I, I wanted to do it from a nonprofit perspective and be able to be involved in helping to free people. So I used some of the money. I used um, a lot of money, not all of it, but, but a nice portion of it. Uh, to start the Jeffrey Deskowitz Foundation for Justice. And, you know, we've um, been able to help free now from when we opened our doors in 2011 until now, uh, we've been able to free 13 people. And uh, we've been able to uh, help pass three laws and then another six as part of a national coalition, um, national coalition uh, group. And at some point I became not satisfied with... Um, sitting in the front row of the courtroom, I wanted to be able to um, sit at the defense table and um, rep rep represent uh, some of the clients, make some of the arguments. So I recently had my first success as, as a lawyer, I helped to overturn Andre Brown's uh, conviction as co-counsel. He was in for 23 years. Uh, overall, the organization, we currently have 13 active cases and there's another five that are um, that are approved, but, uh, but waiting. And so now I continue the same work, but I, you know, I am, I do have a caseload. I do have people that I'm working on and the case I'm working on, and we're doing policy work in New York, in Pennsylvania, California. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of 12 states that does not compensate roughly convicted people. So that's a border state to New York. So, uh, the foundation through our coalition, uh, it could happen to you, which I'm an advisory board member of, and the foundation's part of. We're working on trying to pass exonerate compensation. Uh, in New York, we did pass the country's first oversight commission for prosecutors, like uh, the Commission of Prosecutor Conduct. And, uh, you know, we're working on some other bills in, in New York. We helped to improve our discovery laws that pertain to sharing information between the defense and the prosecution. So it went from being one of the worst states in terms of discovery to one of the better ones. I working on a number of bills that would uh, prevent wrongful conviction by coerced false confessions. So firstly, I want to mention that coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 29% of the DNA-proven wrongful convictions mm. with, with particularly vulnerable populations that people have mental health issues and, and youth. So there's a bill called the Youth Interrogation Act, which the you know, foundation is active with, you know, coalition partners trying to pass, which would give a mandatory right to counsel for 16, 17-year-olds and kids younger than that, saying that they would have to consult with the lawyer to explain their rights before um, they would be in position to then make an intelligent decision about whether they were going to waive them or not. Um, there is a general law in New York that says that custodial interrogations are supposed to be videotaped, but when that law was passed, it made exceptions for uh, homicide, sex offenses, and drug cases. So we're trying to get rid of those exceptions, like my like you suggest, what's the point in that? That's the cases right. we need the most, right? Right. And then there's what's called a police deception bill, which recognizes, if passed, I mean, it would recognize that the police lying to suspects in the 
course of interrogation that that's uh, inherently coercive. So it would ban the cops from lying in it in interrogations. So those are the primary bills that we're working on. Try to pass the um, we just passed and we're waiting for the try to get the governor to sign the challenging wrongful convictions act. So in my story, I mentioned that I wrote letters for four years, you know, trying to get someone to take the case. So that's because um, the courts, defendants don't have a right to counsel and, and post-conviction proceedings. So this would give people, indigent defendants, uh, a right to counsel. And a, a weird quirk in New York law is if someone pleads guilty, but then after that you get a good attorney, an investigator, and you find some evidence of innocence, the, the, the courts will not allow you to argue that you're, you're innocent. They would be limited to just arguing that that evidence proves that the attorney was ineffective for not investigating. So we're saying that we want the court to consider the evidence. Right. Um, also, the, that's legislation in New York. I mentioned a compensation effort in Pennsylvania. In California, uh, we are working on uh, passing the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, which would, you know, the same, the same bill that we passed, like in New York, just, you know, tailored a little bit according to the California state constitution. So those are that those are the campaigns we're we're involved in. Uh there is a documentary short called Conviction, which is available on Amazon Prime, uh, which is about my life post exoneration and and my and my uh advocacy uh work with a larger feature supposed to, you know, due to be released later this year, but that'd be a documentary. But I'm still hoping to find a literary agent to get, uh, you know, get a book published by a major publishing company and, you know, ultimately have like a movie and have my story released in other art forms. I mean, it would be, I mean, far, far lesser stories have been told, say in musicals or one man show, or I'd like to have my story in as many different iterations, you know, um, just as a cautionary tale and, 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 you know, just in, in, raise awareness about wrongful conviction and, you know, the deficiencies in the justice system that lead to wrongful convictions with the hope that that dialogue would spur on some legislative changes that, you know, and, and of course to increase the profile of my organization. I mean, we're always trying to, the being in the nonprofit world is trying to, trying to raise money, you know, and while we have gotten the 13 people home and we're working on 13 other cases, there's also five cases that we have that are approved, but are just waiting. We don't have the bandwidth to, move the, as currently constructed we really need to raise more money so we can bring in other lawyers and and uh, investigators all the essential personnel i mean my my ultimate goal uh would be to have a chapter of the foundation like in each state and ultimately in each country because i i i really see this as a worldwide issue and i think that in countries where we don't hear about addiction it's not that the wrongful convictions aren't happening. It's that nobody is, no, the injustices are not being undone. Nobody's working on them. None of, not, not, you know, the, the courts are not overturning the, the cases. So, yeah, that's what, you know, this is what my life's about. I mean, I make sense of my, what happened to me in this kaleidoscopic way. Like, I'm, I found my purpose, in other words, and this is what it is. Yeah, you've turned it. You've you've definitely turned a, a, a life-altering, massive uh, injustice into um, a crusade. You know, uh, right. you know, yeah. which 
you know, maybe that's why it happened. I believe that it is. No, I believe that it is. And with that, you know, I, I have an acceptance. I have an inner peace, higher sense of purpose, you know, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not an angry person. You know, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And, you know, I, I can't do that, you know, if I'm an angry or bitter person. And, and I, if I was to be angry or bitter, you know, I felt like I would be impacting any of the people that were involved. I'd be the only loser in that scenario. I was going to say, it's, it's not going to get you anywhere. It's, you know, it's the whole concept of, you know, drinking the poison, hoping it kills the other guy. You know, it's just, you know, silly. So, yeah, you're absolutely going about it the right way. Um, I was going to say, uh, the book, do you, have you written a manuscript? Have you written? Yes. You have published? I have, well, uh, so I've written a book. It's 95% done. It has another 5% to go. But what would be added, you know, would just be some strategic context. So it really would be about adding to my adventures or things I've done and accomplished since I've been released, you know, a significant amount of things have happened since the last time I, you know, was working on it, but I'm all, I'm all the way out and certain things have happened, but I have to add other things like graduating, going to law school, graduating law school, my first client, some of the bills we passed, other, other cases that have been won. That's what would have to be added. But, you know, there's a lot of anxiety books out there. And I try to, like, reflect on myself, the world around me and other people and try to draw themes and, you know, benefit from experience. Uh, you know, they always say hindsight's twenty twenty, but at the same time, whoever can, whoever can look at what has already happened and then draw lessons to, to have, you know, to get around those things going forward, I mean, you're that much better off. So there's a lot of anxiety books out there that really haven't made a ripple. They really haven't been read. They don't make a bestseller list. And that's because the people ran to a smaller publishing company or, or at least one instance, you know, self-published. So I, you know, I want to, I have a lot of things on my plate, you know, I mean, I work maybe like 50 or 60 hours a week. I don't, I don't get paid for this. You know, I have the compensation invested in some conservative investments. So that pays me, that serves in lieu of a salary that allows me to focus my time on this and so between working on cases working on legislation meeting with potential donors strategizing over things and some of the other stuff associated with uh running a nonprofit, and then i speak and then sometimes there's training sessions whether i'm in front of judges or prosecutors or defense lawyers uh, or sometimes even law enforcement i i, I, I don't want to add why don't i figure out how to set up book doors and and do the press around that and get get you know book signing and shelf space okay i want to import that and let somebody else do that you know and i and i want it to be for a major publishing company otherwise it's just going to go i have one story to sell right and right. i don't want to waste it i really want it to make an impact and the general order not always but the general order is that the book does well then there's a movie possibility but if the book bombs you're probably not going to get a movie done out of it so i would rather sit and wait until the right agent and ultimately the right the right offer comes out and that it's marketed properly and it can be the big splash that I'm that I'm looking for I'd rather wait for the right offer than to just you know run run to the first thing that comes along and nobody nobody ever reads it and you know none of those other dreams come true um for as far as a bestseller is concerned you're right you probably have more of a chance but doesn't mean you don't have a chance if it's not a bestseller, but 
Um, and I was going to say, you, you definitely, you need a literary agent, obviously. You're sure. still waiting for that? You, you, I'm still waiting for that. I went through two of them already. So I went through one person and I thought that that was the guy. And it's the old story if you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish, you know, in, in a huge pond. Right. And unfortunately, I was a small fish in, in, a, in a huge pond and there's only so many hours in a day. And so although he wanted to push me, he spent his time on clients that would yield much more money. And so that right. didn't work out. Uh, and then I had a different literary agent um, after that. And I think the climate was different than I wasn't a lawyer then uh, either. And I think the winds of justice reform and wrongful conviction that are like welling rather strong now weren't as much then. I mean, at that time, I feel like the mass incarceration movement kind of like sucked all the oxygen out of the room. And that was what the craze was, not wrongful conviction. And so the publishing companies, you know, weren't, weren't interested uh, at that at that point. But I think it could be different now. I just have to find... I have to find the right person. I did meet with somebody. I'll tell you a quick, big net, laugh a little bit at, at life to not go crazy. So it started out, this guy was supposed to represent me as my literary agent. And it went from that to he connected me with a former client of his who had written a bestseller. And, and, and then, and then it, it turned out he wanted that guy and him to get, to get the money. And I wouldn't have gotten anything. And, it would have just been for the exposure and then try to recoup something on the back end through to the movie, you know, and that just right. simply didn't make any, are you working for him? Are you working for me? I, it's my story. You can cut this thing backwards. Uh, but well, here's where you have it written. You weren't asking right. them to write the story. Like I can understand them getting a chunk of it if they wrote the story, but you've written your, you're saying 95% done. Like, yeah, right. Exactly. It's not like you can't write. You you write. You were writing a column, you know, once a week. Yeah, for five years. Yeah, for five. five and I've, I've had more than 200 articles in print, and I've been published in nine different publications. So yes, I do. I do know how to write. Yeah. So that was, you know, so that's where that went. But look, I'm waiting to find the right person, and I think also when the book comes out, other opportunities open up. So I'd love to have a speakers bureau represent me. But if you don't have a book, they don't. They don't want to touch you. I had one entity that agreed to take me on anyway but you know what they promised me they didn't deliver they 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 promised that they were going to proactively seek out speaking engagements and be into a higher uh, you know honorarium level and instead all they did was manage offers that came in and i really didn't right i have the same problem i have the exact same problem so i got away from them but i think i could go back to if i had a book that was doing well i think that that's a game changer and somehow or another, I really would like to get into motivational speaking because, you know, I could never give up where the back end of the story would not be about systemic deficiencies that lead to wrongful convictions, but it would be maybe life lessons and inspirational, never give up. And I could share the formula I came up with for, you know, making making a difference and it would be that. But I, again, I I feel like I need more infrastructure. Like I haven't met the right person or, 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 or people yet to open those you know doors for me because you know i can't be a master of everything but the idea would be in speaking whether it's motivational or otherwise the idea would be that it would be a sideline that it would be a minor income stream for the foundation towards 
you know, expanding our capacity, how many, you know, how many more additional innocent people could we work on trying to bring all, how many other places can we, you know, pursue policy initiatives aimed at preventing this. And that kind of ties into my biggest challenge, you know, which is, you know, I didn't, I didn't arrive at the socioeconomic position that, that I'm, I'm in now. I mean, I, I kind of arrived there artificially somewhat, just by means of the lawsuit rather than coming up in business 10, 20, 30, 40 years, or I came upon that one life-changing idea that then, you know, boom, you know. Um, so I don't have this cachet of people that I know, that I have credibility with, that I, I can go back to and, you know, they, they fund the organization. So I really need third parties who can function as connectors, just so I can get in conversations with people and entities of capacity. And it's a soft sell. Look, here's who I am. Here's my credentials. Here's what the organization's mission is. Here's our track record. Here's what we could accomplish, you know, if we did get the funding, the metrics that we could hit. And is this something that speaks to you or is it not? And if not, thank you for your time. But I, I need help to get into those type of conversations. And it's really not about me. It's really about other people. Like I'm, I'm free. I'm a lawyer. I know the system and you know, I, I, I have finances, so I, I doubt very seriously I would ever be, you know, wrongfully convicted again. So it's not it's not really about me. It's about the other people, the men and women that I metaphorically left behind, not just in New York, but but everywhere. You know, so the more we could raise, the more that we could work on freeing people. So that's really the biggest challenge, you know, is is for that. So or maybe some of the people that are listening. You know, they can reach me. There's a web form on the website, www.deskovic.org. We have the Patreon campaign. So that's, you know, politicians of both parties can raise tens of millions, hundreds of millions of what they refer to as small dollar donors. You know, why not, why not, why not money to free innocent people? Imagine, dream for a second with me here. What, what if 25,000 people were willing to sacrifice three to five dollars on a recurring monthly basis. I mean, that would give us close to a million dollars. Could you imagine what we could, you know, how many people we could work on trying to, trying to bring home, you know, with that, or people that work at corporations that do corporate philanthropy. I mean, just, just to, you know, put a bee in someone's bonnet, you know, right. hey, you can them, you know, so that's really what I need that, or people that can help in one way or another, but, but all, all of that being separate and distinct, from people and entities that aren't looking to help the mission, but instead simply want to do business or want to sell me a product or sell me, you know, a service. I'm really not interested in in that. I I, I don't like equations where, you know, one a, a service provider it, it, their money's guaranteed and everyone else is is speculative. I like when people are sit at the same side of the table as me and we we, we rise or fall. Um, together, because look, I you know I I've been burned a few times, you know, in right. trying to raise money. So I mean, I've learned I've learned from you know from that. But yeah, that's really what it's about. You know, trying to be able to not have this waiting list of people and you know expand that type of thing. But you know, last point on that, I want to beat a dead horse. But you know, all, all the money would go definitely to the mission. None of it would make its way into my pocket under under any rationale, under any theory. You know, this doesn't gain money. I've actually put money into it 
Um, but I'm happy because I mean, I earn money other ways, you know, whether, right. whether, whether investments or where people are exonerated as, as, as a lawyer, I can help them with compensation on the back end part. I have my ways that I can earn personally, you know, it's not through this organization. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, one of the things prison teaches you is that, you know, money is not going to make you happy. Um, no, it's definitely, it's definitely not. And, you know, just the social side of it. You know, just putting the my life together on the social level. You know, right. just to have people, hey, you free? I'm free. Not literally, are you free? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to come over, man, with this go ride bikes, man. Yo, they think the carnival's in town, man. I, I want to hit up the bumper cars or let's play, yo, get, get the boys together. Let's play some basketball or, you know, kickball or, you know, stuff to, you know, play a game with chess or, you know, let's go to a sporting event. I mean, but just trying to build the social part of my life, the friendship side of the equation, you know, and, and, and the romantic side of the equation. I mean, it, that's the part that I've found has been the most challenging and the most frustrating to be, to be frank with you, because in, in some ways I feel like I'm still paying for the wrongful conviction even now to this right you know to this second because i haven't been able to put the social side of the equation really together i mean my life was pretty well positioned socially before the social train got knocked off the tracks i mean i mentioned i was one of the main kids out of a lot of them and we would do all kind of kid-like things and you know like i i, I miss that you know but where how do i when you're not starting with any human assets, where do you start? I mean, if you're an immigrant and you come from another country, you know, um, Spanish people find Spanish enclaves and the Italians right. and, um, you know, the Chinese or Chinatown or, you know, you, you, you name the Russians, you, you name it, right? They, they go to a certain area. They, you know, I call it theory of one person, right? Coining my own term. Okay. You find one person and that person brings you around to that community you mean I, now you've met everybody. Now, some of the people take a liking to you, not everybody. A few people do. That's your, and then they lead, they lead you to even more people. And then you're right. I, I, listen, I understand. Where, where, where's my peers at? Where, where's my version of that to find, though? <laughs> I hear you. Listen, I, I have no friends that I didn't meet in, in prison. You know, I, I don't know if you, you know this. I was, I was, you know, I was incarcerated for 13 years. You know, uh, guilty, absolutely guilty of every one of the charges. Um, but all my current friends are guys that I knew from prison. Because you're right, you're right. Even if you meet somebody and they're nice and they're friendly and everything else, you're right. They don't invite you out. They don't. You make them feel uncomfortable. You know, I I, I get it. You don't you don't feel comfortable. That's fine. I don't want. I'm not begging you to come around me. You know, but yeah, but you're right. All my friends I met in prison, they eventually get out. I kept in touch with them. They get out. We hang out. We help each other. We support each other. But yeah, you're right. No, there's no, there's no new friends. There's no, I don't know any normal people. So I, I, I understand what you're saying. It's tough. Yeah. And I, and I made an effort when I first got out, I made a, a genuine, genuine effort. Didn't happen. You know? Yeah. I have one friend. I have one friend, but he actually lives in a state. So we're more text friends. You know, you, you, you text each other once a day or you send a, you send a, a TikTok. you know, right. like we don't hang out. Right. 
Right. And then, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I can, I, I, I can relate. And then I, I the other thing, the other challenge I, I've noticed because, you know, I do, I do know a number of other people that were exonerated, a few of which I knew were, when we were both wrongfully in prison, a, a much bigger population of exonerees that I did not know on the inside. And, you know, I do know quite a bit of people um, committed to a crime-free life, guilty before, but on parole, doing the right thing now. Um, some of them I knew on the, on the inside. But I've made this observation that I feel like in some ways I'm a subset of a subset, meaning Please. that I was like Very 16 good. when I was arrested, and in for 17 to 32, I mean, that's a lot different than someone's life is interrupted at, at uh, 21 or 25 or 30, you know, in that we don't necessarily have the same uh, hobbies. Like most people, they're not still looking to get out of basketball court or, you know, ride a bike or go to the bumper cars or, you know, explore this aspect of the world or or another, I mean, we can get together, we can shoot the breeze, you know, maybe we can play a game of chess. In, but even, in but even if it becomes limited, I, 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 like, I, I would like to find people that share three, four, maybe five different things so we can change genres of, 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 of activities and, you know, see what the world is about going here or going there. But, you know, a lot of people also are frankly struggling a lot you know, uh, on the income level, on the job level, you know, I, I was that way for about five years, but you know, my reality has changed, but you know, it's tiring sometimes where if Jeff doesn't pay for everything, then nobody right. can go anywhere, do anything. And that, you know, so I found that sometimes becomes somewhat of an obstacle. So really across the board, I'm really, I'm really, I'm neither fish nor fowl. What do I well, you know, I was even going to say, even the things that you have in, col in common, going to law school, going to college, when you went to college, you weren't 20 no. years old. You didn't have the same college experience that other people did at 20, 21, 19, 23, you know, maybe if they're dated 25 when they graduated, you didn't go to college until you were in your 30s. Right. You know? exactly. Law school, same thing. Exactly. And everybody there was much younger and their idea of being friendly was just saying, hi, Jeff, how was your week? All right. See you tomorrow, Jeff. I mean, it wasn't like I was like hanging out with people and socializing with right. them, you know? So, I mean, I feel there's still the dichotomy also. Like, I feel uh, I'm 49, right? But I feel like I'm 26, but not in this fountain of youth chasing now I've found type of joyous, joyous joy-ish way, right. more of a dichotomy, you know, where I have all this energy, but the things that I want to do are not really things that like a 49-year-old is going to do, want to want to do, but now you got to go, you know, younger, but then the more you do, the less in common because, you know, number one, it's not really peer-to-peer -peer any, any, anymore. There's not the same maturity level. Like, I, I, I like things... Like right place, right time, right people in the right setting. We can let our hair down to a certain extent, right? But I understand how one thing can lead to another. It snowballs, and now there's a big consequence. But but people like younger, much you know, like in their twenty, they don't necessarily think about that. How something can snowball. It's like going back to prison, right? There were a lot of people I avoided. I could see like a metaphorical storm cloud above 
above their head, where it was clear they were going to self-destruct. Right. The main thing was to make sure that they didn't manage to bring me down with them. So I kept my distance and, and, and careful and thinking for other people. But someone in their 20s or even their young 30s is not, not necessarily thinking in, in, that, in that way either. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I definitely, I can, I can definitely see, talk to people and, and start to play out how things are going to go, go down for them when most right. people don't think that way. Cause in prison, you have to think that long-term, is this someone I need to be around because he's got a week to six months before he gets stabbed or gets in trouble or they, do I want to be around him? Do I want to be associated with him? It's, it's kind of like the, um, when two guys get into to a fight in prison you walk away. Everybody walks away. You don't stand around and watch it because when the guards show up, they're going to grab both of them and five or 10 of the guys that are standing around them. Yes. You walk away. In high school, right. you stand around and watch the fight. You know, it's it's, it's a people, yes. there's all these little things that people don't understand how you behave, you know. Um, right. I was going to say, uh, as far as, you know, the, you know, the funding is concerned, I was, we can put, you know, we'll put, make sure to put um, all of your links Yes. Uh, to the Patreon in the description box for you. Um, as far as you know, share that too from your social media. Once they see it, what do you put it? That would be really helpful. Yeah, that would. Okay. So, uh, so you broke up for a second there. One, what was it again? You want? Yeah, I was just. Yeah, what I was saying. Yeah, what I was. Yeah, what I was saying is when people see the link from when you put it in, people can share that on their social media and, and word of mouth so they can help move things around that way. Uh, also, you know, right. if, you know, now, listen, yeah, listen. I, I have a Patreon and I mean, look like 10 bucks helps people think, Oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything. Well, you, you know, I'd like to, but listen, I'm not asking for $400 a month, 10 bucks, $9, nine ninety nine. you know, sign up for uh, nice thing about Patreon. You can sign up for $3. Like right. I, I, you know, if it's, if it's 50, that's great. If it's $10, it adds up. Right. You know what I mean? And, and you know, so I'm, I'm extremely appreciative of anybody that can, anybody that can contribute in any way, especially because they don't have to, right. you know, they don't owe me anything. So, right. you know, and they don't owe you anything, but you're, if it's a good cause, then, you know, throw a, a, a little bit of money that way. If you can. Um, sure. You know, people, you know, uh, last year there were, there were maybe, I want to say like five to 10 people that, you know, they did, um, Facebook birthday party things. Well, for my birthday this year, I'm trying to raise this much for this entity. You know, a bunch of people did that for, for the foundation. We, you know, wound up getting, getting some checks. That's another, that's another way of, um, doing that. Or look, if you know somebody that, you know, does a podcast or does blog talk radio or does a blog or they do reporting of one kind or another, um, definitely, um, you know, ever mentioned because, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't gauge the show size and the size of I'm going to go on or not. I, I, I go on because right. they might just one person, I might just reach one person. That's a key person that could help in one way or another, or maybe it's just one person that, you know, it enlightens or one way you never know who may go into, you know, a, a mission and do, doing something really positive and, and they felt inspired by one thing or another. Speaking of which, if there's any future lawyers listening, you know, uh, I, I, like I always say in person, I do, I do encourage people to take on one wrongful conviction case pro bono in the course of your, your, your career. 
Um, but going back to prison for just a second, you know, in in the documentary short Amazon uh, on Amazon Prime, conviction is called about me. You know, I I used the some of the platform that the the director and producer Chi Awards gave me to bring some attention to some of the non innocence justice reform work. Right, my rationale is: look, the fact that it's about me means that wrongful conviction, false accusation is automatically going to get some play, just just automatically, because it's about me. But I used some of that to bring attention to many things I, I either was personally ex- affected by in prison or that I, that I witnessed, which indirectly impacts me. I mean, I talked about things like, uh, you know, mass incarceration. I mean, there were people in prison that were doing 20 and 30 years for, you know, just uh, drug drug possession. I mean, they weren't some drug, big-time drug kingpin, but they, they, they had a quantity of drugs that made it a felony rather than a slightly lesser amount that was misdemeanor. And they had those type of sentences, which was more time than, you know, people that had done burglaries, robberies, or arsons, or even, even, even murder. And, you know, so over-sentencing and, and, you know, um, nonviolent offenders, so mass incarceration. And, you know, I talked about the terrible medical care uh, in, in prison. So the prison where I, where I was at, um, El, Elmira, you know, they had one of the highest uh, inmate mortality rates in New York State and how the, you know, the medical staff, their answer to everything was to give over-the-counter medication and, and come back and then be take a month or two. Right. Yeah, but it would take a month, and that's just to see the nurse, by the way. That that's not the doctor. The doctor that's like a month or two, uh, you know. Um, but but the medical care and you know how just the bureaucracy involved with uh, compassionate release, which is when prison medical staff determine that a prisoner is terminally ill, and so the idea is you put in an application so that somebody can, you know, die with some dignity in, in a normal environment surrounded by friends or, 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 or family rather than by yourself in a, you know, prison setting. And that how, by the time a lot of the decisions came down, I mean, people had like one or two days left or, you know, they already died before the decision actually came, came down and, you know, and how there really wasn't any real effort on the part of the prison administration to, reduce the prisoner-on-prisoner violence or to try to professionalize the correction officers, you know, that the, the verbal abuse, the level of verbal abuse that, that and abuse of authority that then went on and there really wasn't any serious effort, not even a pretense of saying that it tried to reel that in and how if we really were serious about crime prevention. You know, I mean, the curriculum and the vocational trades, I mean, I completed six certificates in plumbing, but nearly all the training was on you know, cast iron pipe and metal pipe. So now it's PVC and copper. So if I decided that I wanted that career, I would start at virtually the same place out here as I would, you know, having not never received the training in there. And so I, you know, just updating curriculum and making sure the professors actually, the instructors actually teach rather than just being there uh, for a, uh, you know, for, for a paycheck. So all these issues I kind of raged about in a dignified uh, way, but tried to bring attention. I mean, the, the, the punishments, the crimes, and I feel strongly about this, 
the punishment for crimes is is, is supposed to be the loss of your freedom. And it's not supposed to be mistreated while you're there. Right. You know, and I feel that the U.S. prison system misses that mark and just proportionality. I mean, when you look in the South in particular, and I mean, the types of time they give out for various offenses, it's 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 crazy the amount of time that's given out for different different offenses. I mean, I think there's something to be said for proportionality and and fairness. It's not about coddling criminals, but it it, it is about fairness. Right. I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I you know, yeah, love what I think. Any of those any thoughts on any of those different issues? I mean, in parole reform and, you know, and, you know, food just being not. I mean, me? Not burned or not under, you know, being undercooked. I mean, yeah. Well, we used to joke. We used to always joke the leading cause of death at, at, uh, at the prison I was at. It was Coleman. We used to say the leading cause of death here is medical um you know i can't tell you how many guys that went in for clearly there were clear problems and they were dead you know two weeks later it was clear the guy's got heart problem you know he's got heart pain heart pain he goes in three times they say come back on monday come back on this th- oh you just got indigestion oh you'll be fine oh come back monday boom he dies right then he went in three times you know i have a buddy who who had self-diagnosed himself as having a, you know, a hernia. They said, you've got, uh, you've got an ulcer. Don't eat these foods. Stop eating these foods. Because I didn't eat one food that was on that list. Sure enough, eventually he complained so much. Eventually they came back, sent him out for like a, whatever it is, the scan to see if he had, what was wrong with him. He had two ulcers, but they wouldn't give him the, the, they wouldn't give him the report. They told him that they found nothing. He eventually got his mother to get a copy of the report, showed two ulcers. But they were telling him, nope, you have an ulcer. I'm sorry, it showed two hernias. They were telling him it's an ulcer. He finally got the report. When he got the report, then his mother, of course, contacted the governor's office. They immediately called the prison. Now suddenly they were like, oh, we're going to give you the surgery. Of course we were. What are you talking about? We never said that. I mean, they're just, you know, they're scumbags. Um, But I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. It's it's the whole giving some guy 15 years for selling, you know, a crack rock. I mean, a, you know, a crack rock, you know, because he had a gun in his house. He right. sold it three miles away, but he had a gun in his house, sold a crack rock, got 15 years. Why? Because, oh, well, yeah, but he's been arrested for selling crack before. 15 years? So, you know, I I mean, listen, we could go back and forth and back and forth. This, uh, I'll, I'll you know, bitch and complain the entire time, but I'm just not in a position to do anything but bitch and complain. Um, you know, you're, you're luckily you're in a, in a better position. So I was going to say, uh, definitely, I mean, definitely anybody watching should, you know, go in the description and click the link and donate if it's $10 or $5 or $50 or whatever it may be a one-time donation, or even just sign up to me, signing up is better because $10 $10 a month isn't going to bother me at all. You know, giving, you know, a hundred bucks once I'd rather have the $10 every month for two years than the hundred dollars once, you know, I know exactly. it, and it hurts less. Do you have anything else you, you want to say or, you know, set a goal, uh, have a realistic plan of getting there. In other words, you should be able to look at 
your plan three or four different ways and say to yourself, well, yeah, I could see how that might work. Be flexible. Remember that, you know, the plan is the plan. The plan is not the goal. So you got to so be flexible. Um, don't don't be afraid of hard work. You know, I, I, I don't I don't believe with the pie in the sky type thing where everything's going to be OK just because I, I instead believe in rolling up your sleeves, working really, really hard to put yourself in a position for a miracle to happen or a door to open. And uh, there are no excuses why something can't be done. I mean, maybe there's reasons why something will be harder, but but no, no excuses um, why something can't be done. And lastly, um, never, ever give up. And once you make it, you have to reach back and try to bring someone else across that. So that's not limited to wrongful conviction. I mean, I, I've seen homicide victim family members, you know, um, um, be involved in advocacy and reach out to other people in that same position, whether it's someone who's a victim of uh, domestic abuse that's gotten out survived and and rebuilt their life and reaching back to uh, other people or you know whether it's um someone that's been sexually trafficked or or someone that's faced racism or discrimination or some other type of calamity of greater or lesser you know that that i think is the formula for making the world a little bit better making your suffering count for something and you know having some inner peace and it'll be cathartic and healing and it'll be me Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. If you like the video, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Also share the video, uh, that really helps. Leave me a comment with the uh, in the comment section that helps with the algorithm. And definitely, if you wanna click on any of the links and you want to donate to uh, Jeff's foundations, uh, the links will be in the description box. And I really do appreciate you guys checking out the video and um, See ya.